Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi guys, welcome to Cults and Crime, a true crime podcast covering cults, crime, and everything in between. I'm Jamie. Well, I'm Nicole, but I'm not sure you're Jamie. What's wrong with your voice? It's just a cold. Podcasting stops for no woman. <laughs> Podcasting stops for no woman. <laughs> All right, so we are talking about a cult this week. So Jamie, what are we talking about? I'm covering the Rajneeshis. In 1971, a professor named Mohammed Shaja Radnish renamed himself Bagwan and set himself and thousands of other followers down a road that would eventually lead to the largest bioterrorist attack in the U.S., poisoning over 750 people. The name Bagwan, which was used by the guru in the United States, is an honorific word that means God in Hindi. As a child, Rajneesh lived with his grandparents. He received little to no formal education at the time and was allowed to run free. According to Rajneesh, this portion of his life would majorly impact him going forward. Rajneesh was given a lot of freedom in his life, but his life was also haunted by death. Well, what do you mean? When he was born, his grandfather hired a wise man to make a star chart of his life. The wise man refused to do so, claiming that the child would die. Oh, wow. And he was sick during a majority of his childhood. Those around him also passed away. The two deaths that would affect him the most was his grandfather and later the death of his girlfriend and cousin, Shadi. Wait, wait, wait. Girlfriend and cousin? Yeah. It just, that's the way it was. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. <laughs> like, I feel like just saying yes is weird because I feel like I need to explain why. Well, you know, a little backstory on why I didn't, like, this is cash conversation for you would be cool. Like, is there something we need to know, Jay? Why is this so cash for you? I don't know. It's just like, it's how their culture is. And I don't, like, I'm not going to question their culture. That's the way he grew up and that's how his family was. And okay. there's a lot of cultures, including like England, where people would marry their cousins or brothers. When was this cult done again? Um, he changed his name in 1971. Okay, so is this like, well, I guess, is this considered a third world country where everything's going, where this is transpiring? Yeah, this is in India. Okay, never mind. Not really never mind, like, I still, like, not cool, but. It was kind of, he lived in more, like, a more remote area of India as well. So there's not a lot of Pickens. Pickens is slim. I. I think it's just a cultural thing. I don't think it was like a slim pickings thing. I just think it was a cultural thing. Between these two deaths, Radnish would form an obsession with death. After the death of his grandfather, he was moved to live with his parents and started a more formal education. He was described as a gifted but rebellious boy by his teachers. At 19, he started college at Hikarini College in Janapur. Denipur? Dabalapur? God damn. I should have I written a pronunciation guide on this, but I did not. I don't understand what it, they want from us, Jamie. Well, the problem is these are Indian. I'm trying to pronounce these with a Spanish accent, <laughs> but these are Indian places. 
like Jafalper. Please do not message me with how to pronounce these. Don't I know, at so, us. Don't at me. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for destroying your entire culture. I'm so sorry. <laughs> at 19, he started college at Hikaraini College in Jafalper, but was asked to leave after he repeatedly had conflicts with his professors. He then transferred to DNA Jan College, also in Jennifer, but had similar problems there. Due to his constant interruptions, he was exempt from coming into classes and only required to attend formal examinations. Wow. So I know this is going to take us on a little bit of a tangent, but, you know, speaking of cults and Nixon and those kind of things, like a lot of times the cult leaders are charismatic. And they're really, you know, they're super intelligent, but this guy had no formal education up until now. And he didn't get along with anybody, right? The reason he was so disruptive with class was he had too many questions and he often questioned the teachings that he was being taught. Oh, okay. So he wasn't just like that snot kid in the back that was just an asshole. No. The teachers would be like, one plus one equals two. And you're like, well, why? Okay. So the teachers could not get around to teaching the more normal students with him there so they were like here's some books here's the test material as long as you show up to the test we don't care just <laughs> don't come to class it was while in college that Rajneesh started taking strides into becoming a guru according to Rajneesh at age 21 he went under a tree in Banana Vertiai gardens in Jalbalpur to die he drank and ate very little during this time until according to him an explosion happened where he opened his eyes and became enlightened. Funny enough, there is a man who can corroborate the story. Like, he saw Rajneesh go to the tree and sit under the tree for, like, seven days in a row. But according to the guy, there was no quote-quote explosion. Well, when you starve yourself and you're dehydrated, you can hallucinate. And a lot of times, these spiritual awakings, or at least in my opinion, and I'm not a medical professional at all, I took anatomy and physiology class don't at me but you know you have a lot of times when you have these enlightened experiences or you have you know these oh something came to me it's because you're hallucinating because you're dying a lot of people came to that same conclusion actually because he was so obsessed with death that in his mind he went to that tree to die so it's sort of like a near-death experience to him which is why he was you know enlightened after see I don't know, like, yes, near death, because you haven't, you know, because you're sitting under a tree for seven days and not and eating very little, but my idea of, like, a near-death experience is, like, almost getting ran over by a bus. Like, it's not... Well, it's a, it's a psychological near-death experience. It's not, you know, to you, a near-death experience might be different than someone else. There's people that had PTSD because they had planned to go on a boat that sank. Yeah, I, yeah, I've heard that, too. Just some people are more sensitive to things like that than others. In 1955, he received his BA in philosophy, and in 1957, he got his MA with distinctions. He then worked at the University of the Professor, where he spoke on his thoughts on everything from socialism to sex. This made him a really popular professor with the students, but not so much with everyone else. This is where a lot of the Rajneeshis started getting their following with the students that would first listen to him while they were in college. Okay. 
Bhagwan was often described as an intelligent and charismatic man. He eventually had mass followers all over the world through his controversial teachings on sex. In 1968, a lecture series later published under the titles From Sex to Superconsciousness scandalized Hindu leaders. He called for a freer acceptance of sex and became known as a sex guru in Indian press. The people who followed him loved and admired him to the point where many sold their homes, all their possessions, and moved to India. In the early days of the cult, Bhagwan was located in Pune, India, located on the western Indian state of Maharashtra. As his cult grew, he found himself at odds with the Indian government and ordered his secretary to find a new location for his compound. Bhagwan quickly became impatient with his secretary, and that's when Sheila found an opening. Who's Sheila? I'm just going to let you guys all know right now, Sheila does some horrible, horrible things. But I kind of low-key love her. Oh god, okay. Sheila was a bright woman who was really devoted to Bhagwan. Sheila was born in 1949. She was the youngest of six children. She grew up Sheila Abala Patel before changing her name to Ma Anand Sheila when she became a Shinnashin. Well, what is that? It's just another name for the Rajneeshis. Oh, okay. They have a few names and I'll try, I'll try to connect them throughout the podcast, but they're known by a few different things. Oh, okay. So, according to Sheila, she grew up spoiled rot. She received an unusual education for a woman. She was often taught by her own father, who was a scholar. At the dinner table growing up, they had discussions on philosophy and religion. Her father would also invite different teachers from different religions or philosophies to speak to his children. He believed they should have a well-rounded education, even Aww. if they were women. Go, Dad! Yeah, in India, this was a really big deal, especially during that time. Later, she would go to college in America. But before leaving to college, her father took her to meet Bhagwan. This meeting would change Sheila's life forever. She describes the meeting as being transformative. She's quoted as saying, It was in this moment. If death were to come, I accept. My life was complete. So, how old was Sheila? Because I'm assuming she's like under college age and I'm also going to assume he's like in his 40s at this point yeah that's about right she was probably about 17 because she was just heading off to college in America and Bhagwan was uh, at this point a graduated college professor okay it was in America that she would meet her husband and the love of her life her husband was a man named Mark Harris Silverman Silverman suffered from Hodgkin's disease, and he and Sheila decided to live their life to the fullest. Aww. The story is really sad, because even when she talks about him now, you can just see that she really loved him. Aww. And there's a bunch of pictures of them together, and they just look so happy. Mm-hmm. Sheila went back to India to once again meet with Bhagwan. And this is, once again, a turning point for Sheila, where she gives up her life in America... And she and Silverman moved back to India to follow Bhagwan. Oh. Silverman was more reluctant, but eventually he would join the group as well. Unfortunately, Silverman would die May 1971. 
After this, Sheila fell into a deep depression. She went to Bagwan, who put her into a medical coma and commanded that she would no longer be sad once she woke up. How did he put her in a medical coma? They had doctors that were part of the group and they put her in a medical coma. Super casual, okay. Yeah, you know, your husband dies, that's all you need. You don't need to go see a grief counselor, you don't need to talk about your problems, you need to be put in medical coma. Well, that'll solve all my problems. I don't know why, but to me this is just like some guy not wanting to deal with a hysterical woman's problems, so he's like, you know what, just go to sleep. Honestly, though. (laughs) Which is weird, because Bagwan really accepted women. He was one of the only organizations at the time who had women in positions of power. According to Bagwan, men had had their chance, and the next age was going to be the age of women. Feminism, y'all! Another reason why, during the 70s, he was a popular teacher. Sheila continued becoming more and more involved into the organization, until she eventually worked directly under Bagwan's current secretary. So when that secretary failed to give Bagwan the results he wanted, he turned to Sheila. Sheila leaped at the opportunity to be his secretary, his right hand. She recommended Bagwan move his ashram to America, where the Constitution would protect their freedom of religion. Almost immediately, Sheila was appointed secretary... Sheila left for America and almost immediately found land in Antelope, Oregon. In 1981, Sheila spent $5.75 million, or $15.8 million today, on the Big Muddy Ranch. The land was over 64,000 acres. Sheila sorted through and chose the best of the best from Bagwan's followers and put them to work transforming the Big Muddy Ranch into an oasis to their very own Buddha Field. What's a Buddha Field? According to Webster's Dictionary, a Buddha field is a paradise beyond the conditions of historical existence. So when we think of heaven, that's kind of what a Buddha field is meant to be. It's like an oasis, a paradise, that kind of thing. All right. So this area also went by a few different names. Sometimes it's called the Buddha field. Sometimes it's called Rajneesh Param. When you think of cult members, the Sennoshans probably wouldn't fit into your stereotypical idea of what a cult member looks like. 64% had four-year college degrees, and the leadership hierarchy under Bagwan were all women. Bagwan claimed that this was because men had made enough mistakes, and it was women's job to rule now. More likely, it was because Bagwan believed that women were more loyal and easier to manipulate. If Bagwan ruled by charisma, Sheila ruled with an iron fist. Bagwan was all free sex and love, while Sheila was all hard work. Well, how could that be in the same cult? Back in Poon, India, Rajneesh had taken a vow of silence, and ever since then, Sheila had been a mouthpiece for him. So the idea behind Sheila having an iron fist and Bagwan being free love is that you couldn't get mad at Sheila for being tough because she was just following Bagwan's orders. And you can't question Bagwan because he's basically a god to these people. Rajneesh Param, or the Buddha field, was constructed using round-the-clock labor, When completed, it included halls, restaurants, clothing stores, hotels, private living quarters, and an airport. Oh my goodness. And you're like, oh, an airport. No. An airport airport. They had a control tower and everything. Oh, wow. They even built an artificial lake and a dam. It sounds like a nice vacation, honestly. (laughs) Well, before this, the land had very little greenery or animals. 
And one of the members is quoted as saying, like, we brought back life here. We brought back animals. We brought back nature. Because of their work on the land, Sheila is quoted as saying she thinks they deserved a Nobel Prize. All right. Well, I kind of agree. They had a really good sustainable living area. Okay, but is that indicative of a Nobel Prize or is that just, hey, props to you, girl? Like, Well, think about it this way. If you took that community, they were very self-sufficient and you put them everywhere around the world and everyone lived that way, there would be no carbon footprint. There would be no infighting. It would just be lush ground and fed bellies. As you can imagine, this didn't really go down well with the town of Antelope. Why? Well, when they bought the land, they were originally told that it would be a small farming community. Well, it is, kind of. Yeah, a small farming community with a dam and an airport. Okay, I see your point. The townsfolk lived in a small retirement community, and now it was overran with the sannyasins. The Rajis were well known for only wearing like reds and oranges, so the town could pick them out from a mile away, and their town was being overrun by red robes. <laughs> this is only part of the reason why the townsfolk were a bit uneasy about them being there. A movie had come out showing the stages of meditation for the sannyasins, and of course everyone in the antelope went to go watch this movie. The movie seemed a bit too much to bear for this elderly white community of conservative Christians. Can you guess what was it the clip? I, well, you said this guy's like some sex guru, so I'm assuming sex. Oh yeah. The video shows members taking their clothes off and engaging in sex. The clip showed what I would say was forceful sex. Well, what does that mean, forceful sex? Like, I watched the video myself, and it's just, you can't really tell if it was consensual or not. Oh. And obviously, there was no, like, talking beforehand. It just, all of a sudden, everyone's ripping their clothes off and doing it. Oh. Yeah, well, so these people saw this and were understandably outraged. Yeah, I would say, I'd be outraged, too. It said that at night, you could just hear people having sex all around. Like, it would keep the people in Antelope up to sounds of people having sex. But I think, I honestly think it was the Sinatians' way of screwing with them. Oh, you think so? They had a very hostile relationship. Like, I'll go into it later, but they did a lot of things to just screw with each other. All right, Petty, I like it. This was further aggravated by the fact that Bagwan put out a national ad looking for sexually open people. In the United States, he did? Yep. <laughs> okay, continue. He often encourages his disciples to practice free love. So there's a lot of conflicting reports on just how much sex was being had at the so-called sex cult. One former resident denies rumors about constant orgies that the cult was reported to be having. He was quoted as saying, No one working that long has orgies. A Seattle Times reporter that covered the cult was given a sex kit when he went there. What, what's a sex kit? So the sex kits were fist-sized plastic hearts, and they were filled with lubricant, rubber gloves, and condoms. What the? Why the rubber gloves? I, and you know what? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Let's move on. Bagwan encouraged everyone to have open sex, but he was obsessed with preventing diseases. Nice. Same. <laughs> I don't honestly... Eh. 
When the FBI eventually visited the compound, they say they saw two people having sex on a bridge. But when Sheila was asked about this, she said, if people were having sex on a bridge, that was the only time that ever happened. Sure, Sheila. Honestly, I kind of agree with Sheila. People working sun up to sundown. Who has time to have an orgy when you're exhausted? Uh, yeah, but people trying to have sex. Well, if they're op- if he's opening up an ad for sexual people, they will find time. <laughs> I guess. So obviously these people were not getting paid to work 24-hour days. Obviously not, yeah. And labor laws weren't the only laws being broken under Rajneesh Param. Obviously, the compound was expanding rapidly, so they were asking for more and more building permits. The town of Antelope refused to grant any more building permits and ordered that the Rajneeshis take down any buildings over their allotted amount. Shigla didn't like this at all. The extra Rajneeshis began buying land in Antelope. They even bought the one and only cafe in town, and they renamed it Zorba the Buddha. Ha ha ha. Yeah, most residents in Antelope refused to set foot in the cafe after this. That's fine. Yeah, the Rajneeshis also bought the local school and church. <laughs> it's so petty. I love it. <laughs> well, if you're not going to give them building permits, people got to sleep, people got to eat, people got to live somewhere. True. This just further raised the tensions for the town folk, and they begin to arm themselves with firearms and try to disincorporate their town to prevent the Rajneeshis from taking control. This backfired. The town failed the vote at a 52 to 44 voting. That evening, national news covered the story, shooting the Rajneeshis into infamy and shining a large spotlight on the cult. After this, the nation became transfixed with them. Gun shops began selling cutouts of the Rajneeshis, claiming open seasons on red rats or red vermin. What, why red rats, red vermin? Remember earlier how I said they were red, red or orange robes, usually? Yeah. Yeah, red rats, red vermin. Ah, okay. And the tensions were at an all-time high, and Sheila was starting to feel the pressure. Shortly after this, Sheila started to appear on talk shows and morning news stations. She started making bold statements because any press is good press. One of her more famous quotes is after a reporter told her that what if people didn't want her in the Rajneeshis in Oregon? She said, tough titties. <laughs> Unfortunately, shortly after, there was a bombing at a Sinashan hotel. The attack was credited to a Muslim group, but Sheila and many other Sinashans believed the government was sending them a message. Sheila started taking drastic steps to protect people. And her first step, firepower. Oh, okay. She and another Sinashan went to Texas and began buying firearms. There's actually a kind of funny clip of this, of her talking about this on Wild Wild Country, of the Netflix documentary that covers the cult. Where she was like, it's like a going into a candy store, you just walk in and you walk out with guns. Oh. After Sheila brought the firearms back to the compound, she selected and started training a few Sinashans. This is where Jane caught Sheila's eye. Who's Jane? Jane was a devout follower and a good marksman. Full disclosure, I'm not Jane's biggest fan. I just think she's a bit lackluster. Oh my god, okay. Well, you shy out to Sheila, it's just, you know. Well, Sheila seems like a crazy biatch, to be honest. Oh no, Sheila's crazy. But she's the kind of crazy I aspire to be. She had an empire. That's interesting, Jamie. Are you we starting this podcast for you to start a cult? And I didn't know? 
Hashtag cults and crime. Oh my god. Join my cult, y'all. No, um, we're not starting a cult. Are you sure? We just like talk about it on podcasts. <laughs> That's what everyone to know, including the FBI. At me, FBI. Just kidding, don't follow me. She'd originally followed the cult Tupoon India, and after that, obviously to Antelope. After Sheila noticed her skills with a gun, she was quickly taken into Sheila's inner circle. Sheila called Jane in the middle of the night to her private home and asked Jane to wax her legs. Jane did so and was moved into an empty room in Sheila's home. I think this was kind of a test of her devotion. Like, how far are you willing to go for me kind of thing? Yeah, that seems super freaking weird. But Jane did it, so she passed the test with flying colors. Congratulations, you waxed some random girl's legs. Not Sheila was not a random girl. Sorry, you waxed some crazy chick's legs. Congratulations. Sheila was not just a, she was like the head honcho at this cult. Yeah, head honcho and also the craziest person I've ever After Bagwan, who doesn't matter at all after starting. Bagwan is also like this is honestly Sheila's cult. Everyone says it's Bagwan's cult, but it was it's Sheila's. Like he didn't talk to any of his followers for years. Yeah, it kind of seems like this is a lot of Sheila's work. Sheila was the only one who had direct contact with Bagwan for years. Anything that came, like anything that Bagwan had to say came through Sheila to everyone else. Yeah, so again, like she could say whatever she wanted and everyone just assumed it was Bagwan's. Oh, exactly. And he didn't care. He had all the money he could want. He had like six or seven Rolls Royces. Oh, wow. Yeah. So to maintain the control of the town, the Rajneeshi started their own police force called the Peace Force. But their main duty was to harass the Antelope residents. Oh, not so peaceful, huh? They would park outside of their homes and shine lights into the windows when they're trying to sleep. Uh, okay. Just petty behavior. Petty queens over here. I love this cult. It's funny as shit. This is my favorite cult. These actions only highlighted problems with Rajneesh Prom. Soon the town was ordered to disband, as they did not follow the separation of church and state. This is not what Sheila wanted, and not what she had in mind for growing the commune. She got together with Jane and the rest of her lieutenants and hatched a plan. So at this point, what do you think the logical next steps for this cult would be? Like, the logical escalation? So, knowing now who Sheila is and what she's about, I'm thinking mass murder. From sh- you're going from shining lights into windows straight to mass murder. I, I just like Sheila seems kind of crazy to me, and it doesn't seem like an unrealistic step to take for her. Nicole, who goes, who goes directly from shining flashlights into people's windows so they don't get a good night's sleep to slaughtering people? So are you trying to tell me she didn't murder these people? Not yet. Oh my bad. And also they don't die, they just get poisoned slightly. Oh, only a little poison. Didn't hurt Only 750 people on the cold god. Exactly. She did not immediately murder all these people. Good (laughs) guess, though. So, they figured out they needed control of the county. But to do that, they had to win the election. In September 1984, the Rajneeshis implemented a program that theoretically would have given them the votes they needed. Okay. They started a Share a Home initiative. Through the Share a Home initiative, they collected homeless people from across the country and moved them to Oregon to register to vote. (laughs) Okay. 
like kind of smart, right? At the time, you just needed to prove that you were that you were in Oregon for more than like 24 hours in order to register to vote. After this fell through, they had a new problem. What were they going to do with the restless homeless population they had bust in? After an incident where one of the homeless men picked up Sheila by her neck, they started lacing the beer with Haldol. So, Nicole, you're more medically inclined than I am. What's Haldol? So, from my Google research, because I'm actually not that medically inclined, <laughs> Haldol is an antipsychotic medication that has side effects anywhere from just vomiting and normal sickness to death. Yeah, they were really just gambling with the homeless people's lives. They put this in beer, and from what I know of any type of medication like that, you're not supposed to mix it with alcohol. Yeah, because it will do one of two things. It will either heighten the drug, or it'll make it so it doesn't work. And I'm assuming this is going to heighten the drug. So after this, Sheila got rid of the homeless people. How'd she get rid of the homeless people? Mass murder? Nope, not yet. Damn it, okay. They, at gunpoint, kindly asked them to leave. They took him to a large city, Portland, Oregon, and just dropped him off. <laughs> it's their problem now. Basically, Rajni, she's like, in pickup trucks, had like six people in the back of a pickup truck, and just at gunpoint would just be throwing these people off into the city. All right. Like, no money, no food, no way of getting anywhere else. Just bye. Bye, boy, bye. Like, we don't need you anymore. Thanks. Sorry, bye. <laughs> so after this, Sheila needed a new plan. She needed to keep Bhagwan happy, and she had to keep Rajneesh Prem together. She was getting desperate. That same September, the medical center as Rajneesh Param started buying pathogens. If she couldn't steal the votes with the homeless population, she would steal it with poison. Wait, they had a medical lab? Nicole, I cannot stress enough how big the city was. Oh my god. They had several attempts where they tried to douse different things with salmonella, including doorknobs at Capitol buildings. They would put it on like their hands. They wear gloves and put it on their hands and give handshakes to politicians they didn't like. <laughs> and all of these failed miserably. Good job, everybody washing your hands. Exactly. Like, oh darn, people be washing their hands too much in Oregon. Good job. Good on you, Oregon. Oregon's a clean place, obviously. But after several just failures of attempts, just absolute failures by the cult, they eventually doused salad bars with salmonella. Yeah, and that's why I'm never going to eat at a salad bar again, because one, you never know when people are going to poison you salmonella. Well, that, like, they only have those, like, small little, like, sneeze shields on there. So at any point, anyone could just, like, I don't know, just be a little short and just sneeze directly on that entire salad bar. Like, as a kid? Yeah, totally. But they got over 15,000 people sick. Oh. This was the first and most extreme case of bioterrorism ever enacted on American soil. This wasn't Sheila's only plan. One day, she handed Jane a gun and told her to assassinate a senator and presidential hopeful. Oh my god, did she do it? She tried. Okay. From what I understand of the story is Jane went, was given like civilian clothes... Attempted to shoot the guy, and he just never showed up. Yeah, so that plan just went out the window. Lucky guy. Yeah. Obviously, the election came and went, and the Sinoshans didn't win. And after they failed to get a Sinoshan elected, Sheila could feel the power slipping through her fingers. 
She had one too many failures, and they were beginning to show. To make matters worse, Bagwan had started to shift his trust from Sheila to a mini at the cult called the Hollywood Crowd. The Hollywood Crowd came with all the things a traditional leader would turn their head at. They gave Bagwan money, gifts, and drugs. Apparently, he had a particular fondness for laughing gas. Sheila attempted to get Bagwan to stop doing drugs and be more involved in the commune, but he told her to mind her own business. This is when Sheila had his home bugged. She had his home bugged? Yeah. This chick. She wanted to hear the conversations between Bagwan and the Hollywood crowd. Which, it's kind of good that she did, because this is when she discovered that not only was Bagwan's doctor involved in giving the master drugs, but Bagwan had asked him to help him commit suicide. Oh. So why would he want to commit suicide? It kind of seems like his life's pretty awesome. At this time, the government was closing in, and Bagwan knew it. I think he wanted a way out. Oh, okay. He knew it was all about to come crashing down on top of him. Bagwan came to Sheila with a prediction. He told her that he would be passing away on July 6, 1985. But Sheila was not about to let that happen. So she called Jane. See, this is funny because this is the case where Jane actually becomes a murderer. Poisoning had already semi-worked for Sheila, so she figured this was also the solution to her problem. Makes sense. Jane took a poison-lidden syringe and pricked the doctor. Just a little prick. At first, she pretended to be confused, asking him what was wrong, and as he staggered away from her, she walked away. She tried to kill a man, all for Sheila, all for Bagwan. Jane has kind of an eerie quote through Wild Wild Country, the Netflix documentary. Okay. I had grown up clearly understanding, thou shall not kill, and now I had tried to kill somebody. What had happened? Sheila and Jane both left Rajneesh Param shortly after. And this really angered Bagwan. This is the first time someone had left him that he was really close with. And maybe it was because he lost a close friend. Maybe he was just throwing a temper tantrum. But Bagwan was not about to let Sheila get the final word. Addressing the Sanyashins, Bagwan said, She drugged. She's on hard drugs. I have never made love to her, that much is certain. Perhaps that is the jealousy. She always wanted it. But I have made it a point to never make love to a secretary. Okay, she did girl. not prove to be a woman. She proved to be a perfect bitch. She is just going more and more insane before she goes into imprisonment. You just wait. Either she will kill herself out of the burden of all the crimes that she has done, or she will have to suffer her whole life in imprisonment. Okay, dude. Yeah, he took he's, a hard swing with that one. He seems super butthurt. Like, he's butthurt as all hell. For a guy who supports women and thinks women are the future, he doesn't really seem to be supporting women with that quote. Well, she's not a woman. She's a bitch. And she she only wanted to sleep with me, and she's crazy because I wouldn't sleep with her. Yeah, I can only imagine that this guy is not some, like, sex pot. He's not my cup of tea. Well, yeah, so I'm going to assume that he's not just, like, wildly attractive and he has girls throwing himself at him, other than the fact that he's a cult leader. Yeah, I'm... I'm... 100% sure that there was a lot of women that would have killed to have sex with him. See, I can see it being kind of like a purity of the relationship thing where Sheila wouldn't want to have sex with Bagwan. Maybe. I can see that. But she also has a lot of quotes where she is like, he's so beautiful, he's so lovely, he's so beautiful. Yeah, because she was 
obsessed with him like a lot of people in the cult were. There is no information about like if their relationship was sexual or not, or if she wanted it to be sexual, or if he wanted it to be sexual. So it would be wild speculation. Which is what I'm best at, but okay. Reggie <laughs> seems to blame Sheila for everything that happened at the ranch, saying that she did it all without his knowledge or permission. But I don't buy it. She loved him. She was obsessed over him. And I think he knew exactly what she was doing. You don't think she tried to like take it too far just to try to make him happy? I think if she did take it too far, it was because ba- Bhagwan pushed her. Okay. I think she said, Bhagwan, I have an idea. And Bhagwan said, do anything you need to do, my child. Okay. The government agrees with me, at least partially. Both Sheila and Bhagwan served prison sentences. Sheila's was for attempted murder, grievous bodily harm, wiretapping, and, in- and immigration fraud. Bhagwan's was for immigration fraud only, as he took a plea deal to return to India. At this time, he changed his name to Osho and restarted his ashram before dying of heart failure. That's all I have for this particular cult. If you guys want more information, I really do recommend watching Wild Wild Country on Netflix. It has a lot of details that I didn't mention today. Okay, guys, next week we're going back to crime. Nicole, what are we covering? All right, so I thought we'd start doing something a little different. What I'm thinking of doing is giving you guys a little hint and then having you guys guess throughout the week what we are going to be talking about. Well, we're all true crime fans here. I think we'd like a little bit of mystery. Give us a chance to put our detective hats on. (laughs) All right, so my hint is high-heeled shoes. I think I know what you're talking about, but I'm going to let everyone else guess. All right, guys, so if you know what I'm talking about, DM us on our Instagram with all of your suggestions and guesses. Hey, cult and crime fans. If you like listening to us discuss charismatic leaders and husbands who definitely did it, then one of the easiest ways for you to support us is by subscribing to us on whatever listening platform you're using and giving us a five-star review. We love all of our listeners. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.